Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today on Hot Nights and Cold Bodies. On a steamy July night, the quiet atmosphere in a sleepy Middle Tennessee town was forever shattered by a triple homicide. For 16 months, residents of the town looked over their shoulders until the suspects were brought to justice. Our story today is not only that of a triple murder and the people who committed it, but also of the dogged determination of a group of small-town detectives and police officers who dedicated their lives to bringing the accused to justice. Today you will hear from Rick Hall and Todd Spearman, two of the detectives involved from the initial crime scene all the way through the guilty verdicts. You'll also hear what could not be revealed during the investigation and trial. How exactly the television show America's Most Wanted played into solving the most heinous crime in the history of the town, as well as what Detective Hall told the grand jury to secure the indictments. Please be advised that this broadcast contains graphic descriptions of multiple homicide victims and may not be suitable for all audiences. For many years, Smyrna, Tennessee was no more than a bump in the road between Murfreesboro and Nashville. In the 1950s, it was home to Seward Air Force Base, which eventually closed and was taken by the local airport authority to host commercial and private as well as military aircraft. Virtually all of the businesses were on Lowry Street, where railroad tracks run parallel to the highway. Smyrna was known as a speed trap with out-of-town motorists who dared cross the 30-mile-an-hour barrier being fair game. The town began changing in the late 1970s when the town mayor crossed the ocean and convinced a major automobile manufacturer to build a facility. With the factory came other supporting industries bringing jobs and residential growth. The town continued to grow over the years, reaching about 13,000 in 1990 and doubly to over 27,000 by July of 2000, but still maintained innocence. People were friendly and walked the streets without fear. I worked in Smyrna in 2000 as an accountant for a company at the airbase that serviced cargo jets. The Y2K fiasco had passed with no aircraft falling out of the sky. Smyrna was a good place to work, and my many co-workers described the town as a good place to live. There were two interstate exits leading to Smyrna, 
And I always took exit 70, which led me by Smyrna High School, then down the main thoroughfare, eventually leading to the main gate of the airport. On Wednesday, July 12th, I took my usual route, and I noticed a large gathering of police and emergency vehicles in front of the Captain D's restaurant. I went on by and wondered exactly what had transpired. Perhaps an overnight robbery, or maybe an injured employee. A couple of hours later, a co-worker told me the terrible news. Two employees had been murdered during a robbery. A third employee had also been gunned down over a thousand feet away from the restaurant and had been found in his car parked behind the local Kmart store. July 12th would be considered by many as the day the innocence was lost for Smyrna, and until arrests were made over a year later, local residents held their children closer and were more wary of their surroundings. Captain D sits at 402 North Lowry Street in the heart of Smyrna. In 2000, it was bordered on the south by BP Gas Station and on the north by Shoney's Restaurant. Just to the north of those locations was what was considered one of the main shopping attractions of the town, a strip center anchored by a Kmart store. North Lowry Street was, and still is, a mishmash of businesses ranging from car lots, tire and auto repair stores, and restaurants, as well as a funeral home and the old train depot. If one wanted to go shopping or go out to eat, North Lowry was the destination. The area was well lit, as I can testify to, having been there many times after dark in the months leading to the murders. It was sizzling in Smyrna on July the 11th, the temperature hit 97 degrees and was still hovering in the low 80s with no rain and no wind when Captain D's closed at 10 p.m. There were four employees to handle cleanup duties. Three of them had barely more than two hours to live. Brian Spate was the assistant manager of the restaurant. The 29-year-old was born in Washington, D.C., and spent his early years in Los Angeles with his mother and stepfather. His early years were described as tough by his aunt, who also said there was physical and substance abuse problems at the home, along with other unspecified incidents. Spate moved to Nashville in 1998 and bought his first house, a brick-and-siding ranch house on Vista Cove in Nashville's Parkwood neighborhood. His neighbors said he lived alone and kept his property clean. Spade had been hired as the assistant manager at Captain D's on April 10th, just three months before his murder. He was considered to be a hard worker who would show up hours early for his shift just because he believed he was needed. Scott Myers was a manager trainee at Captain D's. Myers had worked in food services for more than 20 years, most of them with the Dairy Queen Company. He had worked for Captain D's for only five weeks. Tragically, Myers was on the last night of his training in Smyrna. He was set to leave the next day to be assigned to a Captain D's in the Memphis area. The 42-year-old had been married to his wife Julie for 15 years and had three daughters, ages 15, 12, and 10. His wife described him as a hard worker and a wonderful father. 
He was active in their church and spent a great deal of time with his family. 18-year-old William Troy Snell was a senior at Laverne High School and was taking summer classes in hopes of graduating that year. Troy Snell was described as a hard-working, kind-hearted individual who knew a ton of people and enjoyed cruising around Smyrna. His parents had helped him purchase his first car. At the time of his passing, he had made one car payment. Doug Wagner cheated death that evening and should buy his mother a dozen roses every day for the rest of her life. His mother, Lori Wagner, made a decision that would save her son's life. Instead of allowing Doug to be brought home by Troy Snell, she picked him up at the restaurant. The air is hot and stifling and the moon three-quarters visible as the employees go about their duties of getting the restaurant ready for the next business day. At about 11 p.m., Brian Spate spoke via telephone to Dorian Clark, an employee of the Captain D's in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. Spate didn't say that anything was amiss at the restaurant, and they made plans to get together later that week. He said goodbye to Clark when he heard Myers in the background saying it was time to start the cleanup. A few minutes after 11, Scott Myers and Troy Snell left the restaurant and walked to the BP station next door and purchased a few items. Snell was observed on the station's video surveillance tapes at 11.14 p.m. Lori Wagner arrived at the restaurant a few minutes before midnight, and her son Doug clocked out at 11.51 p.m. Time records from Captain D's indicate that Troy Snell clocked out at 12.06 a.m., while Brian Spate did not clock out. Scott Myers had clocked out at 8.09 p.m., but had returned to the store to learn the audit closeout procedure. Wagner later testified that she saw Brian Spate and Troy Snell walking Doug to the door. Doug got in the car and they drove onto North Lowry Street. Within minutes, everything broke loose inside and outside the restaurant. Fast forward to about 2 a.m. North Lowry is quiet except for the faraway rumble of a passing train. A garbage truck rattles through the parking lot its first stop, Captain D's. Driver John Pierce said later that there were two cars still in the parking lot, which was unusual as there were normally not any cars present. When he went behind the Kmart building at about 2.15, he noticed a sedan with the interior lights on. The driver's seat was reclined with a boy apparently asleep. Pierce tried to wake the occupant with some noise, but there was no reaction. He doesn't leave his truck, but instead notified his dispatcher, Wanda Jackson, to have the Smyrna Police Department take a look at the situation before he left the scene. At 2.22 a.m., the police department dispatched Patrol Officer Gretchen Woodruff to the area behind the Kmart. She observed a dark-color Mazda Protégé sedan. Officer Woodruff's car camera showed her approaching the vehicle and shining her flashlight inside, and then backpedaling in horror. This is Detective Todd Spearman telling what happened at the initial crime scene. When the the initial officer showed up, the officer showed up, and um, obviously the headlights on the vehicle were on. 
And so the officer thought somebody was asleep. So upon further inspection, when the officer went to the passenger side and actually shined his light in, he could see that the, the person in the car, the young male in the car, had what appeared to be a gunshot wound to his right side of his head. The body of Troy Snell was in the driver's seat. His head turned slightly toward the passenger side. She observed blood on his neck and his T-shirt. Although the ignition key was on, the vehicle was not running, and the lights did not appear to be on. Snell's wallet lay in his lap, and his foot was on the brake pedal. There was still plenty of gas in the tank, but the car battery was dead. Snell had been shot once in the head from a distance of approximately six inches. There were no strands of a struggle, and there were no bullet holes in the car or window, which likely indicated that Snell was not running away from his murderer. Detectives were immediately called to the scene to investigate a potential suicide. This is Detective Rick Hall's first involvement with the case. My first involvement, I got called. I was a uh, detective on call. I'd t- actually taken it for another. Um, Jeff Peach was another. He's a city attorney now, but he uh, was having to go to Atlanta. So I took his own call for that one night, and I got that call at 2 o'clock in the morning. I think uh, to, they basically called and said that we had a suicide that occurred behind Kmart on Lowry Street. They noticed a Captain D shirt in the vehicle and sent an officer to the restaurant to determine if any other employees were present. Lieutenant Todd Spearman. Well, we found this shirt in the apron and it being close to what we thought would be the closing time. So we sent some officers, uh, and two officers actually, to go over to Captain D's because the lights were on. And uh, unfortunately, when we got there, there was a um, the gentleman that sprays for bugs, the exterminator. He was there and said nobody else was in the building. So we left, and shortly thereafter, uh, the exterminator, part of his routine, was changing one of the traps in the one of the coolers. And when he opened up the door for the cooler, that's where he saw the two other victims in the cooler and notified us, and we came over there and secured both sides. At 3 a.m., Michael Selly, the owner of Mike's Pest Control, arrived at the restaurant. He had a perfect right to be there, He had a key to the building and was performing the monthly pest control service. He also noticed two vehicles in the parking lot, and he found that unusual since he had never noticed the cars before. Once inside, he saw that the alarm system was not set, and that was also unusual. During his inspection, a police officer arrived and asked if there were employees or other people present inside. After assuring the officer that he was alone, Selly resumed his duties. In front of the cook line, he noticed a brown extension cord on the floor. The cord was leading into the walk-in cooler. Selly usually never had reason to open the door of the cooler, but this time he opened the door. Inside were the bodies of Scott Myers and Brian Spate. Myers' hands were bound by an extension cord that was wrapped around his upper body. Selly immediately called 911, and that call was received at the police department at 3.46 a.m. Upon being notified of another crime scene, Lieutenant Spearman went to the restaurant where he observed the scene in the cooler. Myers and Spade had each been shot once in the back of the head from close range in what the medical examiner would later testify were execution-style shots. According to Spearman, There were no spent bullets or shell casings in the cooler, 
and it did not appear that the bodies had been moved to the cooler from another location. As darkness faded and the sun rose, the restaurant was swarmed with police and emergency vehicles. The Smyrna Police Force was joined by members of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, one of whom was Agent Dan Royce. Royce was a forensic scientist with expertise in firearms identification and also served on the violent crime response team. Royce first went to the scene at Kmart where he made a videotape of the crime scene and recorded his observations. He then proceeded to Captain D's where he made the initial identification of the two victims and also established that the two cars parked there belonged to Scott Myers and Brian Spate. Agent Royce established that the closest footpath between Captain D's and Troy Snell's vehicle was approximately 1,100 feet, almost the length of four football fields. The area was painstakingly searched by officers for anything that could be tied to the murderers, but produced no significant evidence. The safe at the restaurant was carefully examined. The safe was locked and there were two bags of money inside, one containing $700 and the second having $787 and change. As the day went on, the police agencies poured every resource into the crime scene, scouring for even the smallest of clues. But there was nothing that would eventually lead directly to the killer or killers. There were no fingerprints that would be connected, and truth be known, the fingerprints of half the population of Smyrna could have been found at some place in the restaurant. There was no DNA, no shoe prints, there were no video cameras at the restaurant, and therefore no pictures of anyone. Detectives, TBI agents, and representatives spent the day on Wednesday, July 12th, gathering videotapes from neighboring businesses and interviewing family members and witnesses. Finally satisfied that there was nothing more that can be learned from the crime scene, the bodies of Myers and Spate were removed from the restaurant just before 8 o'clock that evening. Autopsies were scheduled for the victims and were completed by noon the next day. Roadblocks were conducted on Wednesday night about closing time, hoping someone driving by at about the time of the murders had seen something. Based on information gathered from the roadblocks and leads pouring into the department, about 100 separate interviews were scheduled. On the evening of July 12th, Lieutenant Spearman and TBI agent Bob Schlafly went to the Imperial Gardens Apartments a low-income housing facility located almost directly across the highway and railroad tracks from Captain D's. The officers went to the apartments to speak with Tiffany Taylor, who had worked at the restaurant. They came face-to-face with two other persons they didn't anticipate. Lieutenant Todd Spearman. Well, we were questioning, uh, we originally were there for the sister of one of the subjects who lived at the Imperial Gardens. And just so happened that the person that we were actually looking for was in one of the back bedrooms. So they came to the front and started interviewing. We started speaking with Miss Taylor at the time. And first, that was our first encounter with Miss Taylor. Um, during that interview, um, I was secondary and the TBI agent was the lead interview. And uh, I was doing most of my observations on what she was talking, what she was wearing. During that interview, there was a knock at the door and a potential second suspect that she had just told us that she had been with the night before, or the sister, and the sister had told us, knocked on the door. And they had, when the door closed, they identified him as the person that was with him, with the person Palmer. 
And so what we did is we, I went to try to locate Percy Palmer and I kept a visual contact with him until a second group of interviewers could get there to um, talk to him, interview him, or speak with him. To spearhead a massive investigation would take someone with not only great investigative skills, but also administrative skills to keep the whole thing together and functioning. The day of the murders, Police Chief Mike Beach appointed Detective Rick Hall to lead the investigation for the Smyrna Police Department. Talk about getting thrown into the deep end of the pool. Hall had been a general assignment detective for only six months or so when he was assigned the lead as the same day of the murders. Immediately following the murders, the phones rang off the hook with tips. In the days following the initial investigation, the police department went silent. Perhaps not necessarily because they didn't have anything to say, but as Assistant Chief Kevin Arnold said, to protect the investigation. Arnold said, One reason we're being silent is for the simple reason that we want to see the person or persons responsible brought to justice. We'll not rest until whoever is responsible for this is brought to justice. Police Chief Matt Beach said, We're putting everything we have, all our resources, into this investigation. Rick Hall tells us about the long hours that taxed the officers' minds and bodies. We arrested them 11 months later, and I can tell you that I worked 38 hours straight, and they sent us home, and I got a call three hours after I got home and went back out, and I worked 27 more hours when uh, that happened, but total... There's not a day that I don't work 16 hours for months. Months. We worked seven days a week, 16 hours a day for the first 40, 42 days. Captain Dees initially laid out $10,000 as reward money hoping that a reward would increase the likelihood that the crime would be solved quickly. As the case continued and leads seemed to dwindle, other sources of reward money, ranging from the local newspaper publishing company to the governor's office, pledged additional funds. The reward eventually grew to $70,000. Within a couple of days of the murders, plans were made to lay the victims to rest. Services for Troy Snell were scheduled from Monday, July 17th at the Woodfin Funeral Chapel in Smyrna, which was a five-minute walk from the restaurant where he worked. Snell was survived by his parents, two sisters and one brother, and one maternal grandparent. On the day of the funeral, local residents lined the street in a show of support. Unavoidable, but in a cruel twist, the funeral procession passed right in front of the Captain D's restaurant. His marker at Woodlaw Memorial Park in Nashville reads, To our beloved son, whose smile and laughter touched so many lives in so short a time, you shall remain in our hearts forever. A visitation for Brian Douglas Spate, born on Christmas Day 1970, was also set for July 17th at the Davis, Campbell, and McLean Funeral Home on Jefferson Street in Nashville. He was survived by his mother, his daughter Alicia, 
his grandmother and two sisters, as well as an extended family. Following his memorial service, his remains were transported to Washington, D.C. and interred in Fort Lincoln Cemetery. Services for Scott Myers were July 17th at the Church of the Resurrection in Memphis. He was survived by his wife, Julie, who he married in November 1984, and their three daughters. He was buried in the St. Mary's Cemetery in Rock Island County, Illinois. An avid Chicago Cubs fan, his tombstone bears a Cubs logo above his name. All of the funerals and related expenses were paid for by Captain Dees. The company also paid for the trips and accommodations for the families to travel to the Nashville area. They also took care of changing the locks on the Myers family home in Memphis and paid for the families of the victims to attend the murder trials. As the investigation continued, the law enforcement agencies continued to work around the clock. The police remained tight-lipped, not wanting to give out any information that could be misinterpreted. There were several questions that were basic to the case that investigators didn't address, among them the most fundamental. How did the murderer or murderers actually get inside the restaurant? Along with that question comes this one. If Troy Snell was spotted inside the restaurant at approximately midnight, how did his car and his body end up behind the Kmart shopping center 1,100 feet away? The long, hot summer of 2000 wore on. The case may have faded slightly in the public eye, but was never far from the detectives' minds. Summer turned into fall, and on October 16th, a press conference was conducted at the Smyrna City Hall where police and the parents of Troy Snell appealed to the public for help. Detective Captain Laura Williams asked for a specific Crime Stoppers caller with the code number 2000-7027 to call them, saying they had a particular interest in the information that caller had provided. Although no specific details were released, it was revealed that the case had been submitted for review by the famed Behavioral Sciences Unit of the FBI at Quantico, Virginia. Captain Williams also said that identifiable evidence had been obtained from the restaurant and from Troy Snell's car. She went on to say that they knew robbery would be a motive as money had been taken and that police did have suspects, although she declined to give a number. Williams also said rumors that nothing was happening on the case because of the limited information released were absolutely false. In fact, seven Smyrna detectives and as many as 11 agents from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation had investigated more than 1,000 leads. Police were protecting what information they did have to ensure that any Crime Stoppers callers did indeed have first knowledge of the crime. In the spring of 2001, the Smyrna police enlisted the Fox Network show America's Most Wanted in an effort to break the case. On May 19, 2001, the segment aired and the case immediately gained momentum. A woman named Brooke Nason and her boyfriend, Chris Hines, came forward with information and were immediately hired as paid informants. While the case was active, Investigators could not say specifically what they were told by the informants, but now Detective Rick Hall can tell us what went on during the broadcast. They they watched the show with her, and she had bragged a little bit about it beforehand, but 
when she watched the show, she said, no, that's not how it happened. They don't know what they're talking about. This is what happened. And she basically laid out her her rendition of events that occurred. And then they come forward with that. And we left. We made points that were released to the media, but there's things that we didn't disclose that um, she kind of hinted around some things that we didn't get out there, so we knew it was going to be a pretty good lead. Detectives were set up in two motels in Nashville with informants in one room equipped with the audio and visual surveillance equipment connected to an adjacent room filled with homicide detectives. They were first quartered at the Pear Tree Inn off Harding Road from July 5th through July the 8th, 2001. And again on July 12th and 13th and July 17th through the 19th at the Ramada Inn in Bell Road in Nashville. Extensive recordings, both audio and video, were made on those dates. Once the rooms were set and the informants settled, they invited a Smyrna resident, LaTanya Taylor, to come over to the room. LaTanya Taylor had plenty to say about the Captain D's murders and the man who was with her that night, Percy Palmer. In one of the taped sessions, Taylor first claimed she had nothing to do with the Captain D's murders, but then admits she had, quote, something to do with it, unquote. She stated that she had disposed of her gun at a pawn shop. She later spoke of the event as something that rides your conscience. She said she did not want to talk about it and said, and it makes you feel bad because there you are, feeling guilty about three dead people. Taylor also said, it ain't no big deal because I'll get a lesser sentence than the ones who really killed them. She said she told Palmer that an individual who worked at Captain D's owed her money for drugs. She stated that they went to the restaurant where she showed her face and they were admitted into the facility. She said she went outside to wait on Palmer and heard the shots and went back inside and saw the victims and Palmer talking to Troy Snell. Palmer put the bodies into the cooler and robbed the victims and the restaurant safe. It was then that Snell ran out the back door with Palmer in pursuit. She went to the gas station and then heard another gunshot. She started walking back to the Imperial Gardens apartments when Palmer caught up with her. She received part of the robbery proceeds from Palmer. In another recorded session, she said Troy Snell got his brains blown out in his car. This time, she claimed to have already been over the railroad tracks by the time of Snell's murder. After discussing the money she received, she acknowledged that she was an accessory to triple murder. On the one-year anniversary of the crime, she admitted that she might be an accessory to murder, but she did not kill anyone. In another conversation, Taylor said she had gotten drugs for Troy Snell and that he owed her money. Taylor said, It's just like I got my money anyway and three dead people, so this isn't funny. She said she didn't know what Palmer had a gun or what kind it was, but she did not think he threw it in the dumpster along with the bloody clothing. That same day, July 19, 2001, LaTanya Taylor was arrested at the Ramada Inn in Nashville. Detective Rick Hall tells us how it all went down. I was the face of that case, so she knew she saw me walk through that door for a breath. 
was she turned out you know, very pale and got you know was physically about to get sick and that but that was a plan you know, we planned that and went out the way it happened we paid for that room and got those people in that room to get her there for western that room. Brooke Nason was also taken into custody and the pair was placed into a patrol car equipped with audio recording devices. Miss Nason urged Taylor to simply tell what she knew. Taylor replied, No, are you crazy? You don't realize how long I'm going to jail. I could actually go to the penitentiary. I can't go there. Taylor also said that somebody's running their mouth and wondered if Chris Hines was the leak. She said that if Hines was running his mouth, He's going to be dead. Taylor was not immediately charged with the murders. She was charged with the March 1997 robbery of an Arby's restaurant on Elm Hill Pike in Nashville, where she was an employee. According to the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, Taylor orchestrated the robbery and was inside when the actual robbery took place. She admitted to splitting $4,000 with two accomplices. Following Taylor's arrest, a nationwide hunt for Percy Palmer was initiated, and he was found and arrested at the Blue Spruce Motel in Aurora, Colorado, on August 2, 2001. He was living at the motel with his mother, stepfather, and their three small children. Palmer was also not immediately charged with the murders. He was returned to Smyrna to face aggravated burglary charges. The arrest of Taylor and Palmer were the 684th and 685th produced by the show America's Most Wanted. Here's how Percy Palmer was tracked down. The basically the the his stepfather had uh, money that was being basically um, given to him every month, and he was good about forwarding addresses. So he could get that check. It wasn't those are the days when you didn't have direct deposit and still got physical checks. So he was good about sending that forwarding address of where his, he wanted that check to go. So we were following them and we got a lead that he would forward his address to a, um, his sister, which would have been Percy's aunt out there in Lower Colorado. So that sent us off on. Here's a question I asked Detective Rick Hall. If police were investigating Taylor and Palmer for the murders, why were they arrested on lesser charges? You got to think that that case right then was the biggest case that happened, not only in our area, but the whole North Tennessee area. We had a Dennis Paul Reed just before that had done some murders in Nashville. So the media got their feet wet with these bigger cases. So uh, they were surveilling us, the media was surveilling us, and, you know, going behind us and doing little things all the time to try to get an edge over the other people. So, yes, we made sure because they had leads at the court system that we didn't spook them by taking homicide charges and trying to get people arrested. And it, it was mainly on person, but he was out in Colorado and we were trying to get him arrested and invited back here. And he fought extradition out there, so we had to up his charge. We had him on basically a burglary case that he had, we know that he had stolen some uh, audio equipment and furniture out of a girl's apartment in Palmbit, and we used that as a felony to get a governor's room to get him back. And then he had a sharp attorney out there that figured out what was going on and fought extradition and we ended up up the hand. For their services as informants, 
Brooke Nason was paid $600 and Chris Hines received $300 along with $1,500 in relocation expenses. She had also expressed her expectation of receiving the reward money in the event of a conviction. On November the 6th, 2001, LaTanya Taylor and Percy Palmer were formally indicted by a grand jury in Rutherford County, Tennessee. It had been 16 months since the triple homicide. Detective Rick Hall and TBI agent Rick Stout presented evidence before the grand jury that led to the sealed indictments. The agents couldn't elaborate to the media on exactly what was presented, saying they could not discuss motive or details due to the pending prosecution. Rick Hall did say, There was no doubt we were going to get these people. Some people counted us out, didn't think we were going to do it. They didn't have to talk to the families every day. Here's what else he had to say about his grand jury testimony. I was in there for over an hour. And I basically laid it out from day one of what we had and the, the steps we went through. We laid out how we had been America's Most Wanted and, the, you know, we, we built out these informants and we rented hotel rooms on three different directions and we sent teams of three in there, 12 hours shifts for two weeks at a time to gain the information that we got. And, and I laid out that they both, you know, gave statements that, they were involved in it, but they pointed the finger at each other as far as the shooter was. So, um, again, as you said, there wasn't a lot of physical evidence there, but we had enough of those confessions and everything else we needed at the time. Taylor and Palmer were each charged with three counts of first-degree murder, three counts of felony murder, one count of especially aggravated robbery, and three counts of especially aggravated kidnapping. Bail for each defendant was set at $3 million. Palmer was held in the Rutherford County Jail, while Taylor was held at the Metro Detention Center in Nashville. An arraignment date was set for later that year in the Rutherford County Circuit Court. Along with the excitement of the indictments, a celebration of sorts took place in Smyrna. The detectives had made an agreement that they would not eat at any Captain D's restaurant until the crime was solved. After the indictments were handed down, lead detective Rick Hall, along with Detective Sergeant Mike Brashear and Detectives Jeff Peach and John Lear and TBI Special Agent Rick Stout, made their way to the restaurant on Lowry Street. They were welcomed by manager Wes Mitchell, who paid for their meals. Rick Hall had waited 16 months for a piece of the strawberry cheesecake at Captain D's. Surely, no piece of cake had ever tasted sweeter. No. How good was that piece of cake? <laughs> it was pretty good. It was it was really good. I was I was always a fan of Captain D's. I grew up. Captain D's was one of the few restaurants when I was a kid growing up. You know, we had uh, I was a you know I was a kid of the 80s. We cruised Smyrna. You know, we rode up and down all night long, and you had Taco Bell, McDonald's, and, and Captain D's. You know, they were our big staples here, and I've, I've been there since I was a kid, and that was one of my cheesecakes, my favorite. And I like the, you know, the Shoney's had a uh, hot fudge cake, and Captain D's had their cheesecake, and I was a fan of both of those. So there you go. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. Cases were. Oh, November nineteenth. Both defendants waived the formal arraignment, and Judge Don Ash appointed attorneys to represent the defendants. 
Public defender Gerald Melton was tapped to lead Palmer's defense, while Herschel Coger from Pulaski would defend Taylor. Both attorneys were certified in capital punishment defense, as it was expected that District Attorney Bill Weitzel would seek the death penalty against both Taylor and Palmer. In January of 2002, that's exactly what happened. The District Attorney filed motions to seek the death penalty. In his motion, Weitzel presented four factors that led to his decision. First, the defendants committed mass murder, which is classified as the murder of three or more persons, whether committed during a single criminal episode or at different times within a 48-month period. Second, the defendants knowingly created a great risk of death to three people. Third, the murders were committed for the purpose of avoiding interfering with or preventing a lawful arrest or prosecution of the defendants. Finally, the murders were knowingly committed or aided by the defendants after they allegedly committed other murders, robberies, or kidnappings. After the arraignments, reporters combed every record available concerning the defendants. Their lives emerged through the media, and they weren't very flattering. Latanya Yvonne Taylor was born July 13, 1977, and was known by the nickname Bebe. According to her mother, Taylor loved music and wanted to have her own record company. But early in life, problems began to develop. She was held back in the third, fifth, and ninth grades according to her school records. Her parents divorced during her teenage years and her behavior became erratic after the divorce. She lived with her father and then ended up in state foster care for a time. She often skipped school to consume alcohol or use drugs. According to DHS records, Taylor had an alcohol problem by the time she was 16. She also incurred numerous juvenile charges, which involved placements at various juvenile detention facilities, as well as the D.D. D. Wallace Psychiatric Facility. She attended more than five high schools before finally dropping out of Antioch High School between the 1993 and 1994 school years. She was a student for the ninth grade in 1992, where her grades on assignments ranged from 51 all the way to 5. After her arrest for the Captain D's murders, she was given a battery of IQ tests. She scored in the 60s. She never obtained a driver's license because she was unable to pass a written test. She bought a car, registered in her mother's name, but it was repossessed when she lost her job and failed to make her payments. When she became an adult, Taylor owned and carried a 380 caliber pistol she bought at a pawn shop. She kept the pistol in a backpack along with a change of clothes. She had worked at a variety of short-term employers that included Arby's, Sonic, McDonald's, Lee Steakhouse, Mrs. Winter's Fried Chicken, and Pizza Hut. She was a cook at the Santa Fe Cattle Company in Hermitage at the time of the murders. She had never worked at Captain D's, but she was certainly familiar with the place. Not only had she dined there, her sister Tiffany worked at the restaurant. Along with her other escapades, including a DUI, Taylor was a known cocaine user and seller. Her sister Tiffany worked at the Smyrna Captain D's. 
After her arrest, she admitted to TBI agent Rick Stout, I told Tiffany that if any of the employees that worked up there needed any drugs, that I would sell them. She ran afoul of the Laverne Police Department as a result of her drug dealing. In order to get a deal with the police on one drug charge, she agreed to act as a confidential informant, making drug buys from a person from whom she had been a customer and providing inside information about drug dealing in Davidson and Rutherford counties. In 1997, three years before the Captain D's murders, police say a Nashville Arby's was the target of Taylor and her accomplices. The robbery netted more than $4,000. Taylor told the TBI that she set up the robbery and was inside when the incident took place. In an eerie precursor to her later crime, the employees were made to go into the cooler while the restaurant was ransacked. She admitted that she and two other people split the robbery money three ways. Charges in that crime were pending in Davidson County when Taylor went on trial for the Rutherford County murders. Percy Palmer's existence also mirrored that of LaTanya Taylor. A native of San Bernardino, California, Taylor was 24 when the murders occurred. He had lived in foster care as a child and lived in motels as an adult, constantly on the move. Palmer had several tattoos, one reading Callie and the other Killa. He was known to his acquaintances as Low Down. Palmer was one of ten children and other members of his family were no strangers to the criminal justice system. One of his brothers was sentenced to life in prison for wounding two individuals in a string of robberies and a carjacking in Riverside, California in 1996. The brother was 15 at the time and an admitted crack addict. A psychologist who interviewed Percy Palmer said, His profile does show a very troubled individual who is gullible, extremely angry, and very suspicious of others taking advantage of him. He takes little responsibility for his problems, projecting blame on others. He feels estranged and alienated from others, and sees the world as a threatening place, with him being the victim or unjustly blamed for the difficulties of others. Palmer said that some of his mental difficulties could be blamed on his mother, who he believed used cocaine when she was pregnant with him. He also said he got upset with his mother when she chose to use cocaine and bring different men into their home. When he was three, Palmer was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis and spent 13 days in the hospital. At the age of six, another child in his home caused an explosion. There were several children living in the home with no adult supervision. Authorities determined that the children were being neglected and they were placed in foster homes, with Percy being sent to live with a grandmother. He returned to the hospital at age eight, but left when his mother would not consent to a lumbar puncture that would have shown whether he contracted meningitis again. During that visit, doctors reported smelling alcohol on his mother's breath. While he was in elementary school, Palmer was held back and was considered a discipline flopper. 
He attended high school at Canyon Springs High School in California with little success, attaining a GPA of .75. He was able to get jobs, but never held one for more than a month at a time. He had scored a 69 and an 80 on IQ tests, where 100 was considered average intelligence. In 2003, Palmer told a psychologist that he loved drinking. He took his first drink at age 9 and was an alcoholic by age 15, drinking from the time he woke up until he went to sleep at night. He also became a marijuana user and would smoke up to a half ounce per day until he was arrested in 2001. He said he also used cocaine, opiates, and tranquilizers, and he once even tried making drugs out of embalming fluid. I personally worked for several years in the funeral industry and was assured by several morticians making drugs out of embalming fluid is not a very bright thing to do. Every story has an element of he said and she said. This story is no different. But Tanya Taylor and Percy Palmer each had an account of the events of July 11th and 12th, and not surprisingly, each one blames the other for what happened. According to Taylor, she spent the evening of July 11th at her sister's apartment with several friends, including Percy Palmer. They drank beer, snorted cocaine, smoked marijuana, played cards, and took Xanax pills until after dark. Later in the evening, Taylor and Palmer crossed the railroad tracks and went to buy more beer at the BP station at Lowry Street. Taylor mentioned that Troy Snell owed her $400 for drugs she had sold him. We will pause here and say money he allegedly owed her. There was never a shred of proof that Snell owed anything to Taylor or that Snell's involvement was anything more than his kindness and good nature being taken advantage of. There was no proof ever that they had ever met before through phone records, friends, anything that they'd even laid eyes on each other before. And the, them being in the store, next door, the BP store, uh, leads me to believe they saw it as an opportunity because they were in the store within a few minutes of each other. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. After being told of the alleged debt, Palmer said that he would take care of business, which Taylor took to mean that Palmer would go get her money. In her version of the story, she watched Palmer go into Captain D's, where he held Snell at gunpoint and walked him into the kitchen area. She says she never went into Captain D's and in fact stayed in the parking lot the entire time. She allegedly heard two shots and began to walk away. She looked back to see Palmer and Snell get into Snell's Mazda protege and drive away. 
She continued walking, and Palmer caught up to her and was carrying a blood-stained t-shirt. Taylor said, Percy told me he took care of business. He was laughing and said how good of a job he did. He said he made them go on their knees and had Troy tie them up. I think they were tied up behind the head. He said he had Troy put them in the freezer. He said he did Troy in. He said he shot them in the back of the head. She allegedly saw Palmer throw a bloody t-shirt into a dumpster near her sister's apartment. Palmer's story agreed with Taylor up to the point that they went to buy beer at the BP station. After leaving the station, Palmer said Taylor asked him to go to the Shoney's restaurant and ask for money from someone who worked there, but Palmer said he refused to do so. In order to get from the gas station to Shoney's, he would have passed in front of Captain D's. Palmer said he walked halfway to Shoney's and turned back. By that time, Taylor was already in Captain D's. He went to the door and Troy Snell allegedly opened it for him. Palmer said, Bebe was telling me to get the money. I said no. Then I heard her asking them, Where is the money? Then I heard two gunshots. It sounded like firecrackers going off. I remember seeing two of the people in the back on their knees This is before they were shot. When I heard the shots, I was standing in the front counter area. He said he left the store and ran back to Tiffany Taylor's apartment. Several minutes later, Latonya Taylor arrived, covered in sweat. The sister asked why was she sweating and what she had been doing, and Taylor replied, Nothing. It's hot outside. The three victims were killed with a single shot from a twenty-two caliber pistol. The murder weapon was never recovered, and Troy Snell did not take his own life as a gunshot residue test performed as part of his autopsy was negative. We will never know exactly what transpired at Captain D's and behind the Kmart store, but this we know for sure. Either LaTanya Taylor is one cool customer, or she had no conscience. The morning after the murders, her mother picked her up at the apartment at 7 a.m. and took her to her job at the Santa Fe Cattle Company in Hermitage, where she worked her regular 8-2 shift. They had no choice but to drive right in front of a parking lot filled with police vehicles at the Captain D's. After the arrest, the court machinery started to turn, and as is inevitable, hiccups began to present themselves. Judge Don Ash appointed attorneys to represent the defendants, but in April of 2002, one of the attorneys was disqualified. Alan Hale was appointed to LaTanya Taylor's defense team, but was removed due to the appearance of impropriety. An inmate named Jocelyn McCrary said she had shared a jail cell with Taylor when she was jailed on an unrelated charge. McCreary said she had obtained information on the case from Taylor and approached Alan Hale. Hale testified that he notified the district attorney after he was contacted by the inmate. McCreary said that the Smyrna detectives and the TBI asked to speak to her after she was contacted by Hale. Even though Hale told the court McCreary was not his client, he was still disqualified. 
Judge Ass said that Hale had information on the case and failed to disclose it to the court. Hale told Judge Ask he did not ask to be on the case, but rather was appointed. That was a bad idea. Judge Ash replied that either Hale or his representatives had asked for him to be placed on the case, saying, It didn't come to me in a vision. Not only was Hale removed, he was ordered not to discuss the case with the remaining defense attorneys. The district attorney asked that the entire defense team should show why they shouldn't be disqualified because Hale put himself in position to be a potential witness. He subsequently filed a motion to have the entire defense team removed because Defendant Taylor could claim ineffective trial counsel should she be convicted. Judge Ash later ruled that the attorneys would stay on the case. Also in April, the prosecution filed a motion to have the trial separated. The prosecution's motion stated that they planned to introduce statements made by the defendants about the participation by action and word in criminal activity about their co-defendant. If the defendants were tried together, the prosecutors might not be able to introduce the statements and the prosecution felt that would not be fair to their case. In June of 2002, another problem came up with the defense attorneys, this time with Gerald Melton, the appointed public defender for Percy Palmer. Melton filed a petition to have himself removed after it was discovered that his office previously defended a potential state witness. Melton's motions included a letter he wrote to the State Board of Professional Responsibility stating that Jocelyn McCrary and another former client heard Percy Palmer make a statement concerning the murders. The state's disciplinary counsel gave his opinion to Melton that it would indeed be a conflict to continue representing Palmer. Judge Ash said he could see a problem with the situation and advised Melton's co-counsel to begin considering another attorney for the defense team. The judge set another hearing for the matter and on June 17th released Gerald Melton for the case. His decision set the stage for yet another delay. Palmer's trial had been set for February of 2003, but other death penalty attorneys hesitated to join the case, saying they might not have enough time to prepare an adequate defense. Ash anticipated that the trial could be delayed three to four months while other attorneys came up to speed on the case. Finally, in September of 2002, trial dates were scheduled. The next February would be Taylor's original date with the jury, while Percy Palmer would face a June date. The judge set an October date for the police to turn over all evidence to the defense. In December of 2002, the defense attorneys began trying to save LaTanya Taylor from the possibility of the death penalty by showing that Taylor had received a diagnosis of mental retardation while she was a teenager. In the state of Tennessee, a mentally retarded person cannot face the death penalty. District Attorney General Bill Weitzel didn't buy it, saying that mental retardation had to exist at the time of the offense. He asked to have Taylor evaluated at the Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute in Nashville. As seemed inevitable, the prospect of delays loomed again. In late April, Patrick McNally, 
the attorney for Percy Palmer appeared in court, saying he was having trouble obtaining documents from California, where Palmer once lived. Attorneys for the prosecution said that Taylor had been evaluated as an outpatient in Murfreesboro and indicated they would file a motion to have her evaluated in Nashville. Judge Ash set a May hearing date on those motions. In May of 2003, Judge Ash scheduled Palmer's trial for November 2003 and indefinitely delayed Taylor's trial. At the time, Taylor was undergoing her mental health evaluation in Nashville. Also in May of 2003, a new wrinkle appeared. The parents of Troy Snell utilized a new victim's rights law and filed a court motion seeking speedy trials for those accused of their son's death. And I, for one, don't blame them. The Snells had been fixtures in the courtroom throughout the process. Their son had been in his grave for almost three years at this time. By June of 2003, it had been some 21 months since the indictments were handed down and the process had been repeatedly delayed. At that time, there was no end in sight. On May 30th, two weeks after their motion was filed, Judge Ash assured the Snells that he was trying to resolve the cases but had to follow procedures required in death penalty cases. He said he wanted a resolution as badly as the Snells did, but the procedures he had to follow were designed to limit the time period for appeals so that a death penalty case would be settled in five years instead of 20 years. In the same hearing, Palmer's attorneys asked that his statement to police be excluded because their expert believed that Palmer was also mentally retarded. They said that their examination took place during preparation for the statement motion. The judge told Snell's parents that he did not think this was a delaying tactic, and Snell's mother said it sure felt like it. She's a smart woman. Because personally, I'm calling BS on this motion. His attorneys had access to him any time they wanted. He had been in custody since 2001 in August. It's May 2003. And now you figure out he's mentally retarded? Bull! Palmer's attorneys also asked for a change of venue due to possible prejudicial pretrial publicity. Bless their hearts, because if you didn't go around murdering people, you wouldn't be in the papers. The judge asked Snell's father about how he felt about possibly bringing in an outside jury. Mr. Snell didn't like that idea one bit, telling the judge he needed to find one in Rutherford County before going elsewhere. We told you earlier, the wheels of justice run slow. In May, the change of venue motion was made. In October of 2003, five months later, the motion was finally denied. The judge did say that he would allow the prosecution and defense to question potential jurors individually about pretrial publicity and the use of the death penalty. In February of 2004, the results of Latanya Taylor's examinations for mental retardation were revealed in court. Pamela Auble, 
a neuropsychologist from Nashville, said she tested Taylor for four hours in November of 2002. She testified that Taylor was mentally retarded because her IQ was less than 70. She exhibited deficits in adapting to situations, and her mental retardation was shown before age 18. She also said Taylor scored poorly on five previous IQ tests, averaging about 66. The average IQ for a person is supposed to be 100. When District Attorney Bill Weitzel got his turn for cross-examination, he didn't pull any punches. He first confirmed that Alba was opposed to the death penalty. He then asked a series of questions about how, if Taylor could not adapt to surrounding circumstances, how was she able to fill out an application to purchase a handgun? How did she work undercover as an informant for the Laverne Police Department buying drugs in cases that ended in convictions? How did she drive a car, use a phone book, and place an order at Captain D's, haul necklaces and other property, allegedly plan and execute a robbery in Nashville? Finally, how did she give a statement and interact with detectives after her arrest if she was mentally retarded. In March, the prosecution brought out its own expert, Dr. Eric Ingham. His testimony was markedly different from that of Alba. He said that Taylor was able to purchase a handgun, work in a restaurant for a year, and work undercover as a drug informant. He also stated that the reason Taylor did not do well on IQ tests was that she was not motivated to do well. To support Ingham's testimony, a Laverne police officer tested that Taylor made four undercover drug buys under his direction. Other psychologists from Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute said Taylor was under their care for 30 days while being evaluated, and their findings were that Taylor performed at a borderline level with an IQ of 70 to 84. She might have difficulty adapting to some situations, they said, but she was not mentally retarded. One of the experts, Dr. Samuel Craddock, was asked why, if Taylor had an IQ of 70 to 84, did she score so poorly on the test administered by Pamela Albo? His response is a gem. She may realize that now is the time to appear slightly disabled. On March 23rd, Judge Don Ash rendered his decision. In a 29-page ruling, the judge ruled that LaTanya Taylor was not mentally retarded and would face the death penalty. The judge wove together the testimony of several experts, noting that Taylor was able to maintain a savings account, use a credit card, and pay her bills, items not normally associated with people with mental retardation. Did you hear them lies? That's what LaTanya Taylor asked her mother in April 2004 after a court hearing in which the judge decided her statements made to police would be allowed in court. The conversations between Taylor and Detective Rick Hall, as well as secretly taped conversations between Taylor and her friend Brooke Nason, would be played in open court. On the tapes, Taylor said, no, I swear to God I didn't kill them people at Captain D's. 
She also said, I did have something to do with it, but blamed the actual murders on Percy Palmer. In another conversation, she said, Now I'm an accessory to murder. Taylor admitted being high on marijuana, cocaine, and pills the night of the murders. She said Palmer gave her part of the proceeds from the robbery, which she used to buy more drugs. In July, it was announced that the jury would not be from Rutherford County after all. A jury would be selected in Chattanooga and transported to Murfreesboro for the September trial. Judge Ash said he believed an impartial jury could be found in Rutherford County, but if one could not be found, the trial could be delayed for months while another jury could be selected. Prosecutors conferred with the mother of one of the victims, who apparently gave her personal go-ahead for the changes. Prosecutors then agreed with a defense motion to have a change of venue, bringing in a jury from another county. Latonya Taylor's trial was scheduled for September of 2004, but she had another date on the horizon. She was scheduled for trial in Nashville on charges she had robbed a fast food restaurant there. District Attorney Bill Weitzel said if she was convicted in Nashville, he planned to use it during her trial on the murder charges. The defense attorneys scheduled a motion to suppress the evidence, but then asked to strike the motion. In August of 2004, another hearing was conducted where Taylor's lawyer attempted to have her statements made to informants suppressed. Taylor brought drugs and alcohol to the hotel rooms in July of 2001 and used them while talking to informant Brooke Nason. Smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol were part of Taylor's normal lifestyle and, according to Detective Rick Hall, the purpose of the meetings was not to get Taylor drunk or high. Brooke Nason was on the witness stand during the hearing and said she decided to call America's Most Wanted a few days after the broadcast. She also said her then-boyfriend and co-defendant, Chris Hines, was too scared to notify authorities. Nason said Taylor joked about the Captain D's murders on many occasions, saying, I did the Captain D's thing. One week before her murder trial started, LaTanya Taylor was found guilty of robbing the Arby's restaurant in Donaldson in 2001. The conviction would be helpful to the prosecution in support of seeking the death penalty if found guilty of the Captain D's murders. The defense, however, wondered if the fact Taylor had not been sentenced for that robbery would be enough to keep the crime from being presented to the jurors. Finally, in September of 2004, more than four years after Brian Spate, Troy Snell, and Scott Myers were shot execution-style in Smyrna, Tennessee, it's time to start jury selection in Chattanooga. 300 prospective jurors were given questionnaires jointly developed by the judge, the defense, and the prosecution. It would be a task to select a jury in a week, in order to be ready for a September 20th start, but the judge and attorneys proved equal to the task. They ran through the first 300 potential jurors and called hundreds more to fill out the pool. By Friday the 17th, the pool had been reduced to 61 individuals. By 1.15 on Friday afternoon, 
12 jurors and four alternates were selected. The jurors would be brought to Murfreesboro on Sunday the 19th and sequestered. Each juror had a hotel room so as to minimize contact and the potential for discussing the case before its conclusion. Monday, September 20th was the day the families of Myers, Spade, and Snell had been waiting for. The trial of LaTanya Taylor finally got underway. In the front row, the families of the victims. Troy Snell's mother, in particular, had been a fixture in the courtroom throughout the process. The trials of Taylor and Percy Palmer had been severed. Palmer would face his day in court at a later time. To get things started, Taylor pled not guilty to all charges. In his opening statement, Assistant District Attorney Tom Jackson dropped a bombshell of sorts on the jurors. He admitted in court there was no physical evidence to connect Taylor to the murders. On top of that, the gun used in the slayings was never found. Taylor's attorney, Paul Bruno, said that was the exact reason that the jury would find his client not guilty. Several witnesses were called on the first day of the trial, including Melanie Taylor, who is a cousin of LaTanya Taylor. It is worth noting that Melanie Taylor had contacted the prosecution about a month before the trial with the information she gave. She was facing a trial of her own in Nashville, but the district attorney said she was not promised or given anything for her testimony. She testified that her cousin asked if she wanted to make a little money because she was planning a job up the street. Melanie Taylor said she did not want to participate. A week or so later, LaTanya called her to ask if she had heard about the murders. LaTanya said it was sad. Jamie Johns, who worked at the Shawnees next door, was able to place the suspects in the vicinity of the restaurant when she testified that LaTanya came to Shoney's and asked to borrow $50, which was denied. Gina Williams, who was the assistant manager at Shoney's, saw two people, a male and a female, in the seating area at Captain D's just after midnight. She said the woman had khaki pants and was carrying a backpack. She said the woman was thick, but in the days after the crime, she said the woman was about 5'5 and had a medium build. Steve Heckler was a neighbor of Tiffany Taylor at the Imperial Gardens Apartments. He testified that Taylor and Palmer were in his apartment that night and left to go get beer, perhaps around 10.45 p.m. He stated they got back sometime between 12.45 and 1 a.m. Doug Wagner, the fourth employee at Captain D's, said they usually went home after cleaning about 10.30. He saw a former employee in the store about 7 p.m., but he did not see LaTanya Taylor. Doug's mother, Laura Wagner, saw a black male walking near the restaurant about 11.30 p.m. She testified that all the lights in the parking lot, as well as the restaurant sign, were off, and that was unusual. The second day of the trial had to be the most heart-wrenching day of the entire deal. The mothers of each victim gave a statement about their children. Troy Snell's mother, Billy, said her son worked at Captain D's in order to fix up his Mazda protege. 
She smiled when she said he liked to bowl and fish and spend time with his many friends. Brian Spate's mother, Daphne Taylor, said her last conversation with her son was a month before his death. They were making plans for her to move to Nashville for him to take care of her. Scott Meyer's mother, Eleanor, last talked to her son sometime after the 4th of July. She was notified of his passing by a corporate employee of Captain D's. She said she did not believe that the call was real. On the third day, prosecutors brought out more audio and videotapes made during Taylor's conversations with the informants. The prosecution had already admitted there was no physical evidence to place Taylor at the scene. Ultimately, however, her own words placed her at the restaurant. On July 6, 2001, she told the informants, I did have something to do with it. I can't tell my mother I had something to do with it. She's got a bad heart. But I could tell my dad. She also said, I didn't kill them. I put that on everything I love. I didn't kill them. Parts of her testimony weren't consistent with testimony from other witnesses. On the surveillance video, she said she saw Troy Snell running out the back door, but the restaurant manager said that would not have been possible. After 5 p.m., that door has no access. The door had a magnetic lock controlled by an alarm company. She also said Palmer's shirt was covered in blood, but the TBI forensic experts testified there wouldn't have been large amounts of blood anywhere except under the victim's bodies. Taylor told the informants that she was haunted by Palmer's actions. She stated, That's something that rides on your conscience. You can't never forget about it. I don't even want to think about it. I can't stand to be around him to this day. He shouldn't have done what he did. Taylor said, she didn't know how much money was taken from the restaurant or how much he gave her. Of course, he gave me cheese, her word for money, but she said she didn't even want it. Forensic scientists from the TBI testified for several hours about their work at the crime scene, describing the locations of the bodies and how each of the victims died from gunshot wounds to the head. They also detailed how they spent more than 12 hours scouring the area and Troy Snell's car, obtaining footprints, cigarette butts, and fingerprints, none of which they admitted could be directly connected to LaTanya Taylor or Percy Palmer. The fourth day of the testimony brought out a last-ditch effort by the defense to place blame elsewhere, and it was definitely the strangest moments of the trial. A woman named Sally Paget was put on the stand and testified that Daryl Wayne Lambert, who she said she was having a secret affair with, was the real killer. Paget testified that Lambert told her he and another man planned to take Troy Snell as a hostage at the restaurant. He didn't mention whether LaTanya was present during the crime. He allegedly said that he, Snell, and Brian Spate smoked pot while Scott Myers was held in the cooler. Paget went on to say that Myers wanted to fight 
and Lambert struck him with the butt of his gun and then tied him up. In addition, Brian Spade allegedly told Lambert and the other man to take the money before Spade's own life was taken. Lambert then allegedly shot Snell point-blank while they were sitting in his car. Lambert allegedly told Padgett this tale in 2001 when he was her supplier for cocaine. Now here's the kicker. Sally Padgett was on probation for facilitating a robbery. She admitted to having multiple personalities and was supposedly taking 15 antipsychotic medications. Under cross-examination, the district attorney asked which personality was on the witness stand. She replied, whichever one is calm enough to sit here. She also said, I have no idea what I did yesterday. When it came Lambert's turn to testify, he told a different tale. He said that not only did he not murder anyone at the restaurant, he didn't even know Sally Padgett. He did admit to knowing Troy Snell, but said the last time he saw him, the two were in grammar school. The grisliest part of the trial followed. The state medical examiner, Dr. Bruce Levy, took the stand. He stated that he performed the autopsies on all of the victims. The cause of death for each was a gunshot wound to the head and that the manner of death was homicide. Levy said that Troy Snell was shot at a distance of six inches in the right temple by someone sitting in the back of his car. Brian Spate was shot at a distance of two feet. Scott Myers was bound with an electrical cord under his armpits and then around his clasped hands. Myers was shot in the back of the head near the base of his skull and the bullet struck his spinal cord. He died almost instantly. Following the testimony of Dr. Levy, the prosecution rested its case. On Friday, in rebuttal to defense witness Sally Padgett, the district attorney provided tests that showed neither Spate nor Snell had any drugs in their systems at the time of death. He also put Detective Rick Hall back on the stand to address discrepancies between what Padgett said on the stand and what she said in her interview with him. Defense attorney Herschel Coger cross-examined Hall about a blue backpack or duffel bag allegedly carried by Taylor that was found in the hotel room at the time of her arrest. Hall said he did not send any of the items to the TBI, but did not elaborate as to why not. Latonya Taylor took the stand outside the presence of the jury and said she did not wish to testify on her own behalf. Following her brief stay on the stand, the defense rested. Closing arguments for the prosecution were simple and to the point. Assistant District Attorney Tom Jackson performed brilliantly for the state. He reviewed the evidence linking Taylor to the crime, specifically the video and audio tapes made at the hotels. He said the crime was about Taylor getting her cheese, her word for cash. Taylor got her cheese, Jackson said, and we got three dead people. Herschel Coger handled the closing for the defense. The prosecution, he said, wanted the jurors to make a leap about the evidence. For example, one witness who saw Taylor inside the restaurant described her as a medium-sized woman, while Coger described her as larger. He said this was an alibi case. 
as several witnesses had placed Taylor at the Imperial Gardens apartments at the time of the murders. Coker said Taylor wasn't even at the Captain D's. He said jurors had to be sure they were convicting the right person. At 5.30 on Friday, the fifth day of the trial, jurors began deliberations. The jury of five men and seven women deliberated for five hours before calling it a night. Saturday, September 25, 2004, more than 50 months after the murders, was the day families had been praying for. The jury deliberated for four more hours before the judge was notified that a verdict had been reached. Latonya Taylor stood with her lawyers and appeared emotionless as Judge Don Ash read the verdict. Taylor was found guilty on nine of the ten charges she faced. She was found guilty of felony murder in the deaths of Snell, Myers, and Spate, as well as three counts of aggravated robbery. She was also found guilty of the aggravated kidnapping of Myers and Spate, but was found not guilty in the kidnapping of Troy Snell. As the verdict was being read, the mothers of the three murdered men held hands and cried, while the parents of Latonya Taylor appeared stunned and hung their heads. After the verdict was completed, Taylor simply held out her hands, was handcuffed, and led peacefully from the courtroom. On Monday, Taylor was back in court for the sentencing phase of her trial. The prosecution wanted the death penalty and listed all the reasons why and presented several aggravating factors, such as the fact that three people were killed at once and that Taylor had previously been convicted of a robbery. Taylor's attorneys had to go the other way, presenting mitigating factors such as Taylor's mental capacity and the fact that it could not be proven who actually pulled the trigger in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. Taylor once again declined to testify in her own behalf, and she didn't bat an eye when the judge committed her into the custody of the state for the rest of her natural life without the possibility of parole. In December, she went before Judge Ash again. She was given an additional 20 years for the aggravated robbery and aggravated kidnapping charges. She had also been sentenced to 23 years for the Arbery's robbery in Davidson County. If you're keeping track, that's life plus 43 years. Taylor's attorneys filed a motion for a new trial within days of the guilty verdict. They said that the proof was insufficient to support a guilty verdict and that the prosecution had failed to prove the crime had happened in Rutherford County. Prosecutors responded that the proof was indeed sufficient to support the verdict, and that the defendants freely admitted that the crime happened in Rutherford County. In January of 2005, that motion was denied. Of course, you can't have a sentence without an appeal. Taylor filed an appeal in 2006, appealing her convictions by challenging the sufficiency of the evidence to support the convictions. When the sufficiency of the evidence is challenged upon appeal, the relative question to the reviewing court is whether, after viewing the evidence in the light most favorable to the prosecution, any rational trier of fact 
could have found the essential elements of the offense charged beyond a reasonable doubt. In order to prove Taylor's guilt in the murders, the state relied on the theory of criminal responsibility. Under Tennessee law, a person may be charged with an offense if he or she is criminally responsible for the perpetration of the offense. The appeals court said that while the proof in the case was largely circumstantial, when taken in totality, pointed unerringly to the defendant's guilt. Taylor's attorneys also said that the testimony of her cousin, Melanie Taylor, should have been excluded along with the surveillance video and audio from the hotels. They also said that the trial court erred in not finding Taylor mentally retarded. The appeals court concluded that the evidence was sufficient to support the judgments of conviction and that the testimonies of Melanie Taylor and the audio and videotapes were properly admitted. They declined to review the mental retardation issues. In 2009, she filed another appeal, this time claiming ineffective counsel. She contended that she was eligible for post-conviction relief because her attorneys failed to call a potential alibi witness, failed to effectively communicate with her, and failed to timely notify her of the Supreme Court's denial of her Rule 11 application for relief. In order to obtain post-conviction relief, a petitioner must show that the conviction is void or voidable because of the abridgment of a constitutional right. While the court did find that counsel waited an unreasonable amount of time before notifying her of the disposition of her application to appeal the court's prior opinion affirming her convictions, it did not show that the counsel's delay prejudiced her in any way. The court ultimately found that Taylor did receive the effective assistance of counsel. Her appeal was denied. Taylor is now inmate number 00 381637 in the Tennessee prison system, and she will reside at the Tennessee Prison for Women until she draws her last breath. From the time of her arrest until the time of this broadcast, she will have been in jail or prison for the last 18 years. She was born in 1977. She would be 42 years old on July 13th, of 2019. It is entirely possible she could be in prison for another 40 years or so. While many were disappointed that the death penalty was not imposed, one columnist in the Daily News Journal pointed out that Bebe is now living in her own little hell on earth, knowing that she caused the murders of three innocent individuals, and she must live with that fact for whatever life she had left. Detective Rick Hall had an insight into her life behind bars. After Bebe was safely locked away, attention was turned to Percy Palmer and his upcoming trial. Thankfully, on January 26, 2005, the public was spared the expense of another trial when Palmer took a plea agreement with prosecutors. Before accepting the deal arranged by prosecutors and Palmer's court-appointed attorneys, Judge Don Ash conversed with Troy Snell's mother, who was wearing her son's class ring. She indicated that she was satisfied before he proceeded. 
Ash reviewed all of Palmer's rights with him, and Palmer gave up each one. Ash asked Palmer if he was pleading guilty to felony murder because he was indeed guilty. Palmer only answered, Yes, sir. Ash imposed a sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years served. Ash dismissed several other counts after the sentence was handed down. Palmer did receive credit for time already served since his arrest in 2001. As with Taylor, Palmer couldn't leave well enough alone and filed an appeal. In August of 2005, Palmer filed a standard appeal form asking for an appeal based on the following grounds. First, his conviction was based on a plea involuntarily entered without understanding the nature and consequences. Second, his confession was coerced. The evidence against him was obtained in violation of the U.S. Constitution. His right against self-incrimination was violated. The prosecutors failed to disclose evidence favorable to him. His attorneys were ineffective, and his sentence was excessive. He was not represented by counsel when he filed his appeal, but he did ask the court for representation and Judge Ash appointed Bill Bullock to represent him and scheduled a hearing for September. Finally, in June of 2006, Judge Ash dismissed the appeal after Palmer declined to testify in his own behalf. It's up to Palmer to prove his points, and when he didn't, his appeal was dismissed. Palmer now resides in the Morgan County Correctional Complex in East Tennessee, and is eligible for parole in February of 2054. He will be 74 years old, should he live that long. Following the verdicts, Calm returned to Smyrna. The town continued to grow and add more businesses and more residents. Lowry Street is no longer the commercial center of town. That belongs to Sam Ridley Parkway, which sports a super target, Malco Cinemas, and enough restaurants to keep you happy for months. Captain D's now has two locations in town, one on Lowry Street and a newer location at 870 on Interstate 24. The BP station is now a sit-go. They sell knockoff sports jerseys, and the Shoney's finally gave it up early in 2019 and will eventually become another restaurant. In the years following the murders, Rick Hall retired from the Smyrna Police Department following 25 years of service and being named the Crime Stoppers Officer of the Year in 2001. He is now a highly successful agent for Farmers Insurance. The commercials say, at Farmers, we've seen a lot. Rick Hall has truly seen it all. If you are in Middle Tennessee and have insurance needs, call Rick Hall. The man will take care of you. Police Chief Mike Beach also retired. The Smyrna Town Council named Kevin Arnold as chief, and he continues to serve to this day. If there is another chief of police in this state or anywhere with as much integrity as Kevin Arnold, I would like to meet them. That person may not exist. Detectives John Lear and Todd Spearman are still with the department. Spearman was promoted to captain, and he now works with the department's administration. 
Detective Jeff Peach is still with the town of Smyrna. He went to law school, became an attorney, and is now head attorney for the town of Smyrna. There have been other crimes in Smyrna, but nothing that compares to those of July 2000. In closing, I would like to extend my appreciation to Rick Hall and Todd Spearman for their time they spent with me, as well as others who shared their recollections of the murders. The archives of newspapers.com was invaluable in my research. For the officers of the Smyrna Police Department and all of those who keep us safe, we cannot say thank you enough. If any of the family members of the victims hear this, you still have our sympathies and our prayers. The Snell family set the bar for families of victims of violent crime. Their constant presence in the courtroom reminded the judge, the prosecutors, and the defense that they cared and they wouldn't give up until justice was found for their son. In my interview with Rick Hall, I could see a faraway and pained look 19 years after the crimes as he described the lives lost. The biggest thing that I told, and I've been to a lot of schools and, and a lot of speaking engagements where I've taken this, and, you know, um, there was bad things that were said about, you know, Troy Snell, that he was a drug dealer and he'd done this drug deal with them and all this stuff, but there's nothing ever said it was. And then Brian Spate, you know, had a background of lower poverty out of Washington, D.C. and come down here and had a daughter and was trying to better himself and had a good girlfriend and was headed down the road. He was being a manager and, you know, he, his life could have been a whole lot different and he was doing something good out of it. And then, you know, um, then you had Scott Myers that was there and he was a, you know, a family man and a wife and three daughters and had already retired from one you know, I, I think of myself now being a retired in law enforcement. He had already retired from one company and was a corporate employee, you know, in the ice cream business to going at Captain D's and going through the manager program. And, you know, he lived in Memphis and he was working at that store and he was done. He went to his hotel and was going to pack up and go back. He already called, you know, we didn't have cell phones. He had called his wife from the store and said, honey, I'm, you know, this is my last night and I'm going to be checking out and I'll see you in the morning. But because they were short that night and an employee didn't show up that that was a closer he thought because of the kind of man he was he went packed up checked out of his room and went back and was helping close he should have never been there. never should have been there but you know those are behind the scenes things that you learn about families and you know you know the rock that he was to his family and you know um it I get emotional now just thinking about what all they had. I mean, here you've got a kid that's a senior in high school and actually working. The percentage of kids then that worked was, was low. You come from a hardworking family and, you know, a sister and his mom and dad still that in. He was out there and they wanted, then, like you asked earlier, people wanted to run around and, you know, shame him in some way and say that about him. When, there's no, absolutely no proof ever that one person stepped forward to say that. Not one. And it's a shame. One word of warning to those who think Smyrna, Tennessee would be a good place to commit a crime. Don't even think about it. If you commit a crime here, every member of the department, from the chief of police on down through the ranks, 
will not rest until you are caught, arrested, and prosecuted. Just ask Percy and Bebe. Hot Nights and Cold Bodies is a production of Grave Undertakings Monument Restoration and Cleaning Service. See our Facebook page at Grave Undertakings. If you've got a grave, you've got a grave undertaking. We will visit with you again on Hot Nights and Cold Bodies. Thank you.